0: Hey, good morning, Redemption Tempe. Good to see you all. My name is John Crawford, and I'm one of the pastors here. Really excited to be with you. Um, We're going to be continuing our series in the Gospel of John today. So, There is something that has saved about 1 billion people's lives from famine worldwide. Anybody know what it is? Say it loud. Irrigation. Nope. It's a a good one. Any other guesses? Jesus. It's good. More than a billion, though, actually, which is good. We'll hear that later. It's going to be on the screen here. It is wheat. Now, I will confess, I don't know very much about crops. Um, I'm not a farmer. You can just tell by looking at me that I haven't lived a single day of my life on a farm, right? Like, I'm not a farmer. I don't, I don't know much about wheat. But I've been learning a lot about wheat lately, and it's fascinating. Wheat is fascinating. It is grown on more land area than any other crop in the world. Approximately, globally, it's on about 550 million acres worldwide, And wheat is remarkable because it generates so much life. A seed of wheat is planted still one by one in the ground. And when the seed dies, it produces an abundant harvest, which is why it's been able to save so many lives from famine. See, as we come to John 12 today, Jesus says that he is like a grain of wheat who will be planted in the ground and die in order to bear much fruit. As we come to our passage today, we're going to see three things. First, we're going to see that Jesus' death will bring in a global harvest. We're going to see that Jesus' death will bring in an abundant harvest. And lastly, we will see that we participate in the harvest by fruitful dying. And so before we dive into John 12, would you pray with me? Spirit of God, we ask that you would be present with us today. We know that you are here and we welcome you in this place. We ask that you would have your way with us in our time together. Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us. We want to encounter Jesus this morning. The very presence and power of Jesus, that you would speak through me, that my words would be your words. And Lord, that you would draw us to yourself this morning, that we would worship you for those who are seeking and asking questions, that they would see that you are good, they would see that you are beautiful. And so we give you this time. Amen. All right, so we're in John 12, uh, looking at verses 20 to 26. John writes, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. And they asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip then went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. So the first thing we see is a global harvest, because Jesus' death brings in a global harvest. John tells us that there were some Greeks that went up to this festival, to this feast. See, the Greeks were outsiders. They were outsiders because they're Gentiles. A Gentile is anyone who is not ethnically Jewish. And so they are Gentiles who are living in the Greek speaking world. But we see that they're God fearing, that they travel to worship Jesus. They travel to worship God and they go to this festival but they're not Jewish. And so even in the temple, they would have been excluded from the inner court of the temple. They would have had to be in the outer court known as the Gentile courts. We see that these outsiders, these Greeks approach Philip and they say to Philip, sir, we wish to see Jesus. And then Philip goes to Andrew. And so we have to ask, well, why did they go to Philip and Andrew? Well, Philip and Andrew are the only two disciples who have Greek names. They come from Greek territory. And so Philip and Andrew serve now as the most natural point of connection to Jesus for these Greek speaking Gentiles because they shared a similar culture that they were from a similar territory. And so they made it an easy and comfortable touch point for these Greek seeking Gentiles on the outside. They were a touch point for Jesus. See, we are like Philip and Andrew. We are touch points for people to Jesus, which reminds me of uh, my buddy, his name's Izzy. I met Izzy, Izzy became a friend of mine because I was cutting his hair, I was his barber. And so he, he was coming in every couple weeks to see me. And so we were having conversations about everything, but Izzy grew up in a Muslim family And his story had a lot of pain, a lot of hurt involved. And so he found himself, mid-20s, 26 years old, wrestling through some of life's biggest questions. And because I was seeing him every few weeks, he would talk to me about these questions. He, He felt like he didn't really know where in society he could have these kind of conversations. So his questions turned into conversations about life and faith Christianity, about Jesus, because he had no idea what he believed about the world or God. See, because I would see him every few weeks for Izzy, I served as the most natural connection and the most natural touch point for him to Jesus. But here's the thing about the Greeks. They are genuinely seeking Jesus. They, They wish to see him. And I think for many of us, to our surprise, people outside, the outsiders, outside of the church, people outside of Christianity are far more interested in Jesus than we usually think. I think that our natural default is to think that people generally don't care about Jesus. They they don't care about knowing what the Bible says. They don't care about learning about Christianity. And so that's kind of our natural default setting. And honestly, I've got to confess, that was my default setting with Izzy as well. And I'm a pastor, right? But I'm cutting this guy's hair. And, you know, you don't want to be the overzealous, you know, uh, evangelist barber. The the guy might just be like, dude, I'm just trying to get a haircut, right? Uh, Stop stop giving me this Jesus stuff, you know? Um, But he's giving me all of these hints, that he is interested in Jesus, but yet I was still operating in this default setting of, I don't know that he's actually that interested in Jesus. Until he was like, dude, this guy's not picking up on the hints that I'm interested to learn about this. So he just comes in one day and he goes, hey man, who is God? The world is messed up. There's evil everywhere. Why, why is there so much evil? And tell me about Jesus. Is he just a dude? Is he God? Is he a second God? Is he a prophet? Who is he? Right? So he starts asking me these very blunt questions because he's like, dude, I'm, I'm searching and I want to know about Jesus. And so then I'm like, okay, I guess he's interested. Let me tell you, right? <laughs> um, but I wonder, who are the people in your life that might be more interested in Jesus than you think? See, these, these Greeks, though, are not just outsiders. These Greeks represent something significant. Here in this passage, they represent the world. That these Greeks represent the nations coming to Jesus. That they're seeking Jesus. And what this shows us is that the harvest will be global. That the harvest that Jesus is gathering will be global. It'll be a global harvest, including every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. The Greeks represent The nations. We live in a global city. Tempe is a global city. It's a global city, and God is bringing the nations here to our city, to our backyard. God's bringing the nations here through international students at the largest university in the country in our backyard. And while many universities around the country are shutting down international student programs, ASU has doubled down, which means there will be a huge influx of international students here come August. God is bringing the nations here through refugees who have resettled in our city and who will begin resettling in our city again in the near future. God is bringing the nations to our city through the tech corridor in the East Valley, the tech hub, where employees and their families are moving to our city in our backyard from all over the globe. These people are our neighbors. We have global neighbors. Our children go to school with their children, or maybe they will in the future. We see him at the gym when we work out. We see him at the park, at the grocery store, maybe even in our neighborhood as we go on walks. But imagine, imagine uprooting your life, whether it's by choice for school or whether you're forced out because of the conditions in your homeland. Imagine you uproot your life. Maybe it's just you or you have your immediate family, but you uproot your life from your extended family. You root your life from your community, from your home, from your friends, from your faith community, from your language, from the norms, and you find yourself all the way across the world in a different land, with a different language, with different norms, with no extended family, with no community. If that were you, what would you want? think for me and for most of us, we would say, well, when we get there, we would w- hope that there's someone that we could become friends with who actually would care about us and love us and show us hospitality because there's obviously a sense of loneliness. But sadly, for many of our global neighbors, this is not the reality. For many of our global neighbors, they're never even invited into another person's home. Church. Could we be the people who extend the hospitality of God to our global neighbors in the city? Could we be the people who extend God's hospitality to the people that he is bringing to our city in our midst? See, over the years, participating in the life of Redemption Tempe, I've seen many of you do this. And it's been beautiful. I've seen many of you welcome in the international student and befriend them. I've seen many of you volunteer with refugees and become friends with the refugee community here. I've seen many of you care for the immigrant and it's beautiful, but would we be a church that would be marked by extending God's hospitality to our global neighbors? See, as elders and pastors here at Redemption, we have sensed that the Holy Spirit is doing something. Doing something in our city, but doing something among the nations. And we have devoted ourselves to praying, that we are praying for the nations. We're praying for the people who have never heard the name of Jesus. We're praying for the the nations who God is bringing here through students and refugees in the tech corridor. But I want to invite you all in to pray with us. As we pray for the nations and as we pray for the people God's bringing here, would you join us in prayer as we seek to love, serve, and welcome our global neighbors? Maybe, just maybe, God would use us to extend his global harvest and that we would get to participate in that. Let that be our prayer. See, as the Greeks Here, show us the scope of the harvest, that it will be global. Jesus is about to tell us the amount of the harvest. In verse 23. So Jesus answers Andrew and Philip, and he answered them, and he says, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Second thing we see in this passage is an abundant harvest. The Jesus death brings in an abundant harvest. But this is a, a very weird response, right? Philip and Andrew go to Jesus. They say, hey, hey Jesus, there, there's some Greeks that wanna come see you. And Jesus doesn't say, hey, yeah, bring them on, bring them on in. I'd love to see them. That's not what he says, right? It's, it's a very strange response. What Jesus says is... Well, he doesn't even talk to him, right? Like we don't even know if he ever talks to these Greeks. And most commentators would say that he probably doesn't. And so it seems strange. But if you are a movie director and if we're watching this on film, if any of you guys have seen The Chosen, that's why, why I love The Chosen is they, they do these kind of things. But if you're a movie director watching this, the, the screen is gonna be a wide angle screen when Philip and Andrew go to Jesus, but now it's going to zoom in on Jesus and it's gonna slow down and make it really slow for what Jesus is about to say here because it's significant. Because Jesus' response is that the hour has come. The hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. See, so this is significant because this is the first time in the gospel that Jesus says this. Every other time leading up to this, Jesus says, the hour has not yet come. It's not time yet. The hour has not yet come. But here, Jesus says, no, the hour has come. See, their question, the Greek seeking Jesus signifies a pivotal moment. It's a turning point, and Jesus knows this. Jesus knows it's a turning point because he knows his time of preparation is complete. And so he says, the hour has come, it's time. It's time for me to die in order that I would bear much fruit. The reason why I'm going to die is that there would be much fruit that would come out. But he uses this strange word picture next, right? He says he's like a a grain of wheat. And so he says, There's this word picture that he says, hey, this is what I'm like, compares himself to a seed that dies and bears much fruit. But why does he say wheat, a grain of wheat? Well, during that time, the original hearers would have known that a seed of grain had everything needed to give and sustain life. They would have understood the seed is what gives life and sustains life because Jesus is the source of life. Jesus is saying that he will go into the ground and die because death is a precondition for life. The grain of wheat dying will bring forth a rich and remarkable amount of harvest. The harvest will not be scarce, this will be a plentiful harvest. Jesus could have compared himself to any other seed though. He didn't have to say wheat. But the reason why he says wheat is because of the remarkable yield that wheat has. That wheat out of all other crops in the world, wheat has one of the greatest yields out of any crop in the world. See, when a single seed of wheat dies, it generates so much life. And Jesus knows this, right? Because he's the very God who created the wheat. He created the seed and he knows its yield and he knows its potential. And so he strategically says that he is going to be like the seed of wheat. The wheat is almost like a divine analogy that he's embedded in creation. Because the wheat points towards the cross. The wheat points towards the harvest of his redemption because it will be abundant. That Jesus will generate an abundant harvest. His death will produce so much life. But the thing with wheat grain... Jesus says in verse 24 here, unless the grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. See, if you take a wheat grain, if you take the seed and you put it in a jar and you put it on your bookshelf, it remains alone. That seed is worthless, right? It's worthless. It won't do anything other than if you get a hip enough jar and you put it in the right spot, it might be the next trending home decor on Pinterest. But besides that, it is worthless, right? It's worthless. And it doesn't benefit anyone because it doesn't generate any life. In order for life to be generated from the seed, it must die. It has to go into the ground. And this is what Jesus says. He says that he is the self-emptying seed who was willing to be poured out of the jar into the ground, into the world. He left the comforts of heaven and he got dirty into the soil of our earth. He was willing to suffer and die because he knew that there would be an abundance of new life that would be generated from his death. Jesus gave himself and you live because he died this means that we are the harvest that this is a gathering of the harvest today that you and I are a part of the harvest and what this shows us is his plan worked Right? his plan worked He said that the seed would go into the ground and die and there would be a harvest, an abundant harvest. We are evidence that his plan worked. What I love is that he doesn't say, I'm gonna go into the ground and there might be some fruit that comes out, right? He wasn't at all suspicious or skeptical of what would happen. He was absolutely certain that when he went into the ground, new life would spring up. And we are evidence of that. See, you are wheat because you are born from his seed. You're wheat because you're born from his seed. Jesus died to give you life. And this shows how much he loves you. Like no one else in all the world loves like Jesus. This shows how much he loves you, that he was willing to die in order that you would have life. I wonder, are you amazed at how much he loves you? To think about that, are you in awe of how much he loves you? Does it stir your heart and your affections for him that you desire him when you see that he went into the ground so that you would grow up and spring forth new life? This also means that you are a part of the abundant harvest. This gathering is not the totality of the harvest. You are a part of the abundant harvest. The wheat is not just here in our sanctuary. The wheat is not just here in America, right? The church is much bigger than America. And I know sometimes as Americans, it can it can be easy to lose sight of that, but the church is much bigger than America, right? The scope of the harvest is global. The church is global, but the amount is significant, The amount of the harvest is significant. There are currently 2.4 billion Christians in the world today. 2.4 billion around the globe. And before that, there have been billions who have gone before us. The amount is significant. There's an abundance of wheat all over the world that came from one single seed that went into the ground 2,000 years ago. We are the harvest. And since we're the harvest, Jesus is going to show us what it looks like to participate in the harvest. In verse 25, Jesus says, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the father will honor him. The third thing we see in this passage is fruitful dying. That we participate in the harvest by fruitful dying. Jesus says, hey, if you want to know what I'm about, get ready to be planted the same way that I was. If you want to know what I'm about, get ready to be planted the same way that I was because he paves the way for us. This is the great paradox of the Christian life. The great paradox of the Christian life is that we find life in dying and following Jesus. But Jesus says it's fruitful dying. When we follow Jesus, our lives are no longer guarded and preserved at all costs, but our lives are given mirroring the cross, mirroring the way of Jesus. Because we become like the seed we grew from. If we are planted from the Jesus seed, if we grow out of the Jesus seed, we will become like Jesus. This is true of any seed that you're planted from. And every single one of us sitting here in the room has been planted by some kind of seed. And whatever seed you are growing out of, you will become like. And Jesus is saying, if you're planted from me, you will become like me. You will live like me. See, it would be very strange, even though, like I said, I'm not a farmer and I don't know very much about crops. I at least know this. If you plant a watermelon seed, a watermelon is going to grow, right? Yeah. It would be very strange if you planted a watermelon seed and up came a bell pepper, right? Like, that would be weird. That, that, that would not make much sense. And yet, if we are planted from the Jesus seed, then we should look like Jesus. And so Jesus says, hey, if you love your life, you lose it. Because loving your life in this world means that you will serve yourself. If we love our lives, we'll serve ourselves. And our lives will become selfish. We will participate in the selfish way of this world. But Jesus says, participating in the harvest looks different. He says, this is what it looks like. You're gonna hate your life. He says, if you hate your life in this world, you will keep it for eternal life. Whoever hates his life in this world sounds harsh. Also sounds confusing. What in the heck does that mean? Like, what does it mean to hate your life? Because we all know that person, right? That literally hates life. Right, we know that person, whether it's a coworker, family member, friend, that literally hates life, hates their life, hates everything in the world. the The they're bitter about everything. It's the negative Nancy at work, and you don't want to be around them, right? Because they're utterly miserable. Is Jesus calling us to be like that? Is he calling us to be utterly miserable? No, he's not. What he means by hating your life in this world is. He means the commitment to die to self-indulgence. It's a commitment to dying to self-indulgence. It's a commitment to dying to self-preservation. It's a commitment to dying to self-advancement. And there are some uh, scholars and Bible commentators that actually translate this verse. Whoever hates his life in this world, they translate it this way, and I find it to be really helpful. If you hate the way that life is lived in this world the selfish way of living and your participation in that way of living. If you hate the way that life is lived in this world, the selfish way of living and your participation in that way of living, that is what Jesus is talking about because he wants us to know that fruitfulness comes from dying. See, we don't die to ourselves for no reason. We're not just dying to ourselves for the sake of nothing. We're dying to ourselves so that we can live for something greater. Like it's an invitation to die to yourself because Jesus is inviting us to live for something greater than ourselves. We are not trying to build our own kingdom and preserve it at all costs. Jesus invites us to live for his kingdom. And there's freedom in that. It's a beautiful invitation to live life like a grain of wheat. Jesus wants us to know that it's absolutely worth it, that it's worth it. There's a man who lived this way. His name is Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott lived this way. On January 8th, 1956, he and four of his missionary friends, a team of them were killed. They were martyred. They were martyred because they were attempting to make contact with a violent Ecuadorian Amazon tribe. But see, they had guns. The tribesmen had spears. But they had agreed that they would be willing to die rather than kill the people in the tribe because they looked to Jesus. And they saw that Jesus didn't preserve his life when he was killed. And so therefore they said, we will not shoot and kill Rather, we would actually be killed if that's what it meant. And so sadly, they were killed. They were martyred for their faith. But see, seven years before he was killed, he wrote something in his journal in 1949 that has now become his most famous quote. He wrote this, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. What Jim Elliott's saying is, you're not a fool if you give up what you can't keep in order to gain what you can never lose. And that's how he lived his life. See, and it's tragic that he died. But there's a beautiful ending to the story. Because two years after he was killed, his wife and very young daughter were actually able to move down to the very village and live among the people that killed both her husband and his daughter's father. They made news headlines around the world because it was such a beautiful display of forgiveness and love. And, and the fruit that came out of that fruitful dying that came out of that is that many people in the tribe became Christians and met Jesus. And from that, the global scope of the harvest was expanded. See, this is a beautiful picture of fruitful death, of what it means to participate in the life of the harvest. But for us sitting here today, where God has strategically called us and placed us in Tempe. What does it look like for us to faithfully embody this? Like, how can we embody fruitful dying today in this city? I want to suggest there's something called a bucket list that every single one of us have. You may have a bucket list officially, like you've got it written down. You've got it typed up on a Google Doc. These are things that you want to do before you die. And maybe it's not official, but it's unofficial. And you've got stuff in your head where you're like, man, someday before I pass, I want to do these things. And usually on our bucket list, these are things that we are dreaming of. Like we're dreaming about getting to do these things. And oftentimes, they're good things. They're good gifts from God that we get to enjoy in his creation. But it's also a tendency that many times our bucket list can actually be marked by prioritizing the ways of the world. And I want to suggest that we reimagine our bucket list. What would it look like to reimagine your bucket list for fruitful dying? See, I've got a bucket list and uh, I'll I'll, I'll share a few things. I'm not going to share all of them, but here are some of the things on my bucket list, right? So I would love to travel. Uh, I want to go to a few different countries around the world. I think it'd be great to experience the culture, the food, the art, the beauty. I would love to see the Aurora Borealis someday. I've always been fascinated by it, and I would love to go see it. I would love to uh, have a second home, like a rental property that, that would be paid off someday so that people could stay there or maybe our boys could, could live in it when they get older. And I would love, I love basketball. And uh, yeah, the Suns, my team, it's their first playoff game today uh, in over a decade. So I'm pretty excited about that, um, but I love basketball. And so one of the things that I would love to do is be able to go to every city where there's an NBA team and go to the arena and watch a game right? Like, these are some of the things that I want to do, and the list goes on. But what if I reimagined this bucket list for fruitful dying? Well, rather than traveling all over the world to other countries to experience culture, uh, the cultures around the world, what if we opened our home and shared meals around the dinner table with some of our global neighbors who will be relocating here. And we actually get to experience a glimpse of the beauty of the culture and food through those people in our home. What if, with the rental house and real estate, what if we reimagined that and we opened our home and let someone in need of a place to stay, stay with us in a spare room or a guest house? Or what if the, the travel account where we're saving money so we can go travel, what if instead of dreaming about how much money we could have to travel, what if we dreamed about being able to give away $1,000 to someone? Right? And I don't know what's on your bucket list, but there's reimagining things, and maybe you have something down that you could reimagine. And maybe it's something as as, as that goes like this. Maybe it's being able to dream about serving one hundred hours in one year in the same place with the same people. Or maybe it's even as easy as being able to literally get to know every one of your neighbors. You're dreaming about, I want to get to know my neighbor, their story, develop a friendship with them. See, how can you reimagine your bucket list for fruitful dying? And what would that look like? See, Jesus says that it's worth it. Living this way is worth it. He says in verses 25 and 26 that three things will happen. These are promises that Jesus gives us that three things will happen to those who follow Jesus and participate in the life of the harvest. First, he says that you will keep your life for eternal life, that you will get eternal life. The second thing that he says will happen is that you will be in his presence. Wherever I am, there my servant will be also. That you will be in the presence of Jesus. And the last thing he says is that the Father will honor you. Anyone who serves me, the Father will honor them. These are promises that Jesus says that this will happen. See, we can participate in fruitful dying because Jesus has done it for us. And he has given us his spirit to empower us to follow him faithfully so that we can look like the very seed that planted us. Jesus wants us to know that it's worth it. And so this morning, as we come to communion, the elements Represent Christ's body that was given for us freely and the juice represents his blood that was shed for us that it is through these things these elements and what they represent that we have new life that as you open the bread that this bread exists because the grain of wheat died for you you can take and eat And as you open the cup, this juice exists because the blood of Jesus was shed for you to cleanse you of your sins and make you whole. Take and drink. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you are the grain of wheat who willingly went into the ground and died so that much fruit would be born. We thank you, Jesus, that that your harvest is global. Lord, and we pray for the nations. We pray for the places where the name of Jesus has never been proclaimed. Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would gather people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, even those who have never heard, into your harvest. We pray for our global neighbors who are, who are coming to our city, Lord, that we would extend your hospitality to them and that we could participate in your harvest expanding here in Tempe. Jesus, we thank you for the abundance of your harvest, the abundant new life that you give. Lord, the, the number of us that are gathered here this morning as we gather with millions and even billions around the world this morning to worship you because you are worthy. I pray that your spirit would enable us and empower us to live a life of fruitful dying, that we would follow the way that you've paved because you've called us to it, that it is truly worth it, that we get to live for something greater. And so I pray that your spirit would be speaking and stirring us here and now. Jesus, you are worthy of our praise as we sing to you this morning. We declare that you are good. It's in your name, amen.